Okay, w w welcome all of you to um, the opening session of uh, Bethlehem's third year of operation. Uh, as you, many of you know, uh, Bethlehem, or the Political Economy and Financial Markets Program, was uh, s established two years ago by, uh, under the leadership of Max Watson, uh, sitting over there. And uh, he has led this program uh, to great heights, and we've had two very productive years, and we're about to embark on uh, the uh, third year. Uh, Max uh, suffered a health setback over the summer, so he's taking uh, a back seat uh, at the moment, but a very active, vigorous back seat role. And uh, David Vines has taken over temporarily as acting director. Uh, David was going to be here tonight to um, open this, this year's um, season, as it were, but he had to be in London, so I'm going to chair today's session. Um, for those of you who, don't, who want to get more involved with this, uh, Ju Julie Adams, um, who just popped out, uh, is the, does all the administration, and if you, if you go to Julie, she'll give you, uh, get you on the mailing list, and I'll also point out uh, the, the website that you can access for uh, publications uh, under PEFM. We have uh, six seminars here at the European Studies Centre this term, and there are two others, one at Balliol and uh, one at Chatham House, uh, connected with Bethan, uh in early November. Uh, of the six seminars uh, this term, I would characterise four of them as on the, uh, the, the, arch the financial architecture in, in, uh, and the reform of the financial architecture in the wake of the crisis. But also there are two which I would characterise as falling under the rubric of ethics and economics, of which this one, I think, falls under that category. And um, uh, Colin Mayer um, will be talking in part, drawing on his book called Firm Commitment, uh, that looks at the role of the corporation in society. And then next week, uh, David Vines will be um, talking about trust in finance, uh, so narrowing the focus a bit onto ethics and finance. And as you probably know, that, that this topic has been very uh, much subject of much focus in the debate lately from all different disciplines and you can expect PEFIM to remain uh, very active in this debate uh, in the coming year. Um, there will be a, a podcast for the presentation for this, this week and also for the uh, later weeks and uh, but after the, uh, the, the podcast which is essentially in the public domain the question and answers uh, will be held under the Chatham House rules, which means that they are, you cannot uh, cite individuals in uh, what is said. Now I turn now to Professor Mayer. Uh, he is the Peter Moores Professor of Management uh, at the Said Business School, and you were a dean of the school uh, from 2006 to 2011, and you're a professorial fellow also at Warden College. Um, you're an expert. Uh, in all areas of corporate <laughs> governance, finance and taxation, uh, as well as, as of the regulation of uh, financial institutions. Indeed, you're a fellow of the European Corporate Governance Institute. I think it's it, right to describe you as an essentially an Oxford man, as you did your first degree at Oriel, uh, but you've also been at Harvard, 
the Bank of England, and uh, uh, a large number of other distinguished universities in your career. Uh, you're also uh, a director and chairman of Oxera. Now, that, I don't know if I pronounced it correctly. Um, uh, between 1986 and 2010, which is now one of the, the, the most important and largest economic consultancies in Europe. So enough praise, perhaps. Maybe I should now hand over to you. Well, Adam, thank you very much indeed for that and uh, for the introduction. Uh, as Woody Allen said, since uh, light travels faster than sound, people appear bright until you hear them speak. <laughs> Um, well, I'm, I, I'm extremely grateful for the invitation to be here. Uh, I'm particularly grateful to Max uh, for having suggested it and particularly delighted to see you here today. So thank you very much indeed for taking the trouble to be here. Um, I'm also very grateful to David Vines for having invited me. Having invited me, he then promptly announced that he was not going to be here. He has gone to London to give a rival talk. So uh, it's, in any event, a great pleasure uh, to do this. The last few years have been a torrid time for the financial system. We've had the accounting scandals, market manipulations, payment protection mis-selling, mortgage mis-selling, the LIBOR scandals, Forex scandals, the financial crisis, executive remuneration cri uh, scandals, tax avoidance. And all of these problems <coughs> are basically associated with a variety of different underlying causes. <coughs> I'm going to suggest that in fact they don't have a variety of different causes, that there's a common underlying problem that requires a common solution. And that that common underlying problem is the corporation. And the solution to it is to fix it and not everything else around it. Underlying the corporation is an economic concept of a production function that takes inputs of material, labour, land and capital and converts them into goods and services or it's regarded as a legal nexus of contracts binding together the various parties to the firm. Or it's a social construct for reducing the costs of transacting in the market relative to that in the firm. And above all, the corporation exists to serve the interest of its owners, its shareholders. And its directors owe its shareholders a fiduciary responsibility to uphold their interests and to maximise the value of the firm. And when the that maximisation varies from the, our interests as societies and communities, then we seek to regulate the firm, or if necessary, we take it into public ownership. And when the corporation fails more, we regulate it more, and we nationalise it more. And when regulation and the state fail more, then we liberalise and privatise. And that notion of shareholder-haunted corporations, regulation, and state ownership is a widely accepted consensus. It's the basis of national and international policies around the world. But I'm going to suggest it's fundamentally wrong. And the reason it's wrong is that our, that conception of the firm as a production function or a nexus of contracts or a social construct that reduces the costs of transacting in the firm relative to the market is wrong. 
and above all, that the corporation does not exist to maximize the shareholder value. It exists to do things, to make goods and services that benefit us as consumers and communities, and the corporation is exceptionally well-placed to do that because it can balance the degree of commitment that it gives to different parties to the control that it exerts over them. It can contract and be contracted, employ and be employed, sue and be sued just like us. But it can actually do much more than that. It can offer degrees of commitment that we as individuals can only aspire to. It's a veritable Alice in Wonderland. But over time, it's become a Frankenstein in Transylvania. And the reason for that is it's been hijacked by one particular interest group, its shareholders, and very short-term shareholders at that. Seventy years ago, the average holding period of shares on the stock market was eight years. Thirty years ago, it was four years. Today, it's a matter of months, or in the case of high-frequency trading, a matter of days, hours, seconds, or nanoseconds. Now, that shortening in the horizon of corporations has had devastating consequences. Consequences for our economic systems, our financial systems, and our environmental systems. Because in the pursuit of shareholder gains, corporations have been willing to sacrifice our interests as creditors, communities, and customers. Now, that problem of a shortening of horizons of shareholder interests has been exacerbated by a misdiagnosis of the underlying problem and therefore a prescription of the wrong cures. The problem to which that changing ownership of corporations and financial institutions is thought to give rise is what is termed an agency problem. That is to say, a separation between the ownership of companies and their control. Because of the very dispersed nature of ownership in many countries around the world, not least in the UK and in the US, there's very little incentive for any one particular shareholder to exert a great deal of effort in terms of overseeing the running of firms and financial institutions. And as a consequence, management runs riot. It pays itself egregious salaries, it engages in wasteful investment, it undertakes disastrous acquisitions. And nearly all policy towards the corporation over the last 30 or so years has been directed towards solving that one particular problem of aligning the interests of management better with with shareholders. Sarbanes-Oxley in the United States, Dodd-Frank after the financial crisis in the United States, the Cadbury Code in the UK, the uh, European uh, Union's shareholder activism, directive which came out recently, all of those have as their objectives to align the interests of management better with shareholders. But the problem that underlay the financial crisis was not an agency problem at all. Indeed, those financial institutions that had the highest powered incentives that aligned the interests of management best with their shareholders were the ones that took the greatest risk. And those that had the best corporate governance according to conventional measures of corporate governance standards were the ones that failed the most. 
The problem of the financial crisis was not an agency problem at all. It was something very different. It was essentially a problem of fraud. I don't mean fraud in the simple sense which we might associate it with, for example, Bernie Medoff. I'm talking about something that is much more subtle, something that we teach our students in economics departments and business schools to do all the time, to make money. There are two ways of making money. The first is to do good or to make goods. And the second is to engage in wealth transfer. By wealth transfer, what I mean is making money at the expense of others. That was the problem of the financial crisis because there's a fundamental divergence between the two main parties associated with financial institutions, between the shareholders on the one hand who benefit when the financial institution, the bank, is doing extremely well and when it's doing so badly that it's in distress or bankruptcy, then it's the creditors or ultimately the taxpayer that bears the losses. So from the point of view of shareholders, it's a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose scenario. And therefore, they like institutions to take risks. They like them to flip the coin, and they incentivize management to do exactly that. That was precisely the issue that arose in relation to the financial crisis. And it's not just a problem of excessive risk-taking. It's also a problem of excessive leverage, because there's, they incentivize management also to raise debt, to pay that money raised out in the form of dividends and share buybacks to their shareholders. And it's not just a problem that afflicts financial institutions. It's a problem that afflicts employees who devote specific capital to the companies for which they work and suppliers to companies that dedicate physical capital to companies that they supply. All of them are dependent on the continuation of the firm's with which they engage. So the problem is not an agency problem. It's something that is really very different from that. And what I'm trying to emphasize is that while we think about the problem of the corporation as being essentially an agency problem of aligning the interests of management with shareholders, it's at least a three-dimensional problem. It's a problem as well of aligning the interests of the company with its other stakeholders, its customers and its communities, and it's a problem of aligning the interests of both current generations of shareholders and stakeholders with the interests of future generations. Now, to deal with these problems, we have essentially one instrument. You might think that perhaps the reputation of financial institutions and companies might be sufficient to encourage them to act in a broader social interest. But if you think that, you'd be mistaken. It was July the 27th, 2012. Up on the ticker tapes of the New York and London Stock Exchanges flashed the announcement that Barclays Bank had been found guilty of the libel scandal. Between 1.30pm and 4.30pm, when the London stock market closed, the share price of Barclays Bank rose. The stock market was overjoyed to hear that Barclays Bank had been found guilty of the libel scandal. Now you might think, that well, that was just a temporary blip and thereafter the share price of Barclays declined. Well, over the subsequent six months,
Barclays Bank had to set aside two billion pounds of provisions to pay compensation, not just for the LIBOR scandal, but also for payment protection. And over that six-month period, its share price rose by 65% during a period in which the stock market as a whole went up by 10%, a 55% abnormal return. Lloyds Bank had to set aside £7 billion of uh, compensation for uh, investors and customers. And its share price also rose by 65% over the same period. And it's a problem that not only affects financial institutions, but it's a problem that's been widely observed, for example, in relation to environmental regulation. When companies violate environmental laws, their share price is found to either go up or to remain unchanged. And this is exactly what one would expect if it's the case that a company is perceived to have acted more in the interests of their shareholders, then their share price should respond positively in relation to that announcement and revelation. So from the point of view of society, the impact of reputational effects that come from the stock market are entirely perverse. Now the one instrument that we've got available to us to deal with that problem is regulation. And in response to the failure of the in the financial crisis. In this country, we're introducing a ring fencing uh, between retail and investment banks. We are introducing rules regarding uh, bankers' pay. The European Commission is limiting the extent of bonus payments that can be paid relative to base pay. We are determining who can run banks, how much they can get paid, what they can do, and how much they can charge for the services they provide. We are running rings around the banks. And what is going to be the consequence of that? The consequence is going to be that banks are going to do less of the things that are regulated, like lending money, which we might want them to do, and more of the things like derivative trading, which is unregulated, which we might not want them to do. They're going to do less of the things uh, in this country and more things abroad. They're going to do less things in the form of formal regulated banks and more in the form of unregulated shadow banks. And the reason that this is happening is that the only way in which we can encourage more ethical conduct on the part of institutions and companies is to regulate them. But far from encouraging more ethical compliance, it encourages instrumental avoidance. Anyone who's been associated with the regulatory uh, departments of utilities know that those are supposed to be compliance departments. But in fact, anyone who's uh, been involved in them would appreciate that actually they are avoidance departments designed to minimise the impact of regulation on the conduct of those institutions and companies. Now, in terms of trying to address the issue of how to actually encourage more acceptable conduct on the part of institutions and companies, then what we might start by doing is perhaps looking at a few cases of where conduct has been a bit more acceptable. The most successful bank in Europe at present is a bank that is expanding rapidly in this country, opening branches all over this country at a fast rate. It's one of the most profitable and high-return banks in terms of its equity returns 
in Europe. Uh, it's a bank that did not have to be bailed out at all during the financial crisis. It did not have to be bailed out during the Swedish banking crisis either. It's the Swedish bank Handelsbanken. Now, there are a number of interesting features about this bank, the first of which is it pays its staff no bonuses. No bonuses at all, except for when at the age of 60 they finally retire, at which stage they can have a claim on the pension fund of the bank whose performance is related to the financial performance of the bank. The second interesting feature of this bank is that it delegates all decision-taking to the branches, to the branch managers. There's virtually no centralization of decision-taking. The risks are managed by the individual branch managers to the extent that the Oxford branch manager, for example, there isn't Oxford branch in Botley, determines the products that they're going to sell, the prices that they're going to sell, the way in which they're going to advertise the products in the area. So all of the decision-taking is devolved. The third interesting feature of the bank is its ownership. It's owned by two large shareholders. The first one of which is its own pension fund, Octogenem. The second is it's owned by a Swedish investment com company called Industry Varden. And if you pose the question, well, who's the main shareholder in Industry Varden? You've guessed it. It's Handelsbanken. Okay? It's a cross-shareholding. So here is a bank that pays no bonuses, devolves all decision-taking, not at the board, but right down to the branch management level, and has a cross-shareholding. By every account, it has all of the worst features <laughs> that one can possibly imagine of a bank and what would generally be regarded as completely impossible from the point of view of recruiting any staff. Let me give you another example. The, uh, the most successful period <coughs> of British banking was, of course, at the end of the 18th century, when Britain had a whole series of local banks situated all over the country. Those local banks were basically the... the basis on which the uh, Industrial Revolution was financed. Those were the basis of Britain becoming the workshop of the world. Now, those local banks suffered from a problem, and that is that they were exposed to their local economies. And when those local economies failed, then so too did the banks. And the central bank, the Bank of England, reacted then, as it did during the last financial crisis, by trying to protect the financial system, culminating in the collapse of the city of Glasgow Bank in 1878. And what it did to, uh, to correct the problem was essentially to encourage banks to merge. So banks merged with each other, and when they merged with each other, they shifted their headquarters from localities around the country to London. And as they did that, then they severed their relationships with the companies that they were financing. And basically, the financing of small and medium-sized enterprises ended in Britain at the end of the 19th century when they were consolidated in five large banks in London. And ever since then, we've been trying to revive bank lending 
for small and medium-sized enterprises in Britain, but with virtually no success, except for one example of success which came out of the Macmillan Committee uh, that produced a report on the equity gap uh, in Britain uh, in the 1930s. And the recommendations of that committee were that a new institution needed to be established to fund uh, British enterprise and in particular to provide financing for relatively small and medium-sized enterprises. And the institution that eventually emerged out of this uh, in the post-Second World War period was the Industrial and Commercial Finance Corporation, ICFC. Now, the interesting feature of ICFC is, first of all, its ownership pattern. It was owned as a consortium by the clearing banks and the Bank of England. So it was basically protected from market forces by the fact that it had a long-term stable ownership pattern. The second feature of it is that it devolved decision-taking on lending to the individual branches of the bank and it employed people known as controllers who had a very rare feature for British bankers. They knew something about industry. They had industrial expertise as well as financial expertise. And the result of this was that ICFC became an extraordinarily successful lender to SMEs in Britain. To give you one illustration of a company that basically survived as a consequence of it and would not have without it, Oxford Instruments borrowed from ICFC in the early phases of its development. Not only was it basically uh, the mechanism by which many small and medium-sized enterprises were financed in the post-Second World War period, it was also an extremely profitable bank. It also had an arm known as Finance for Industry, which was a provider of equity as well as debt finance to SMEs. And towards the end of the 1970s, ICFC merged with that sister organisation, Finance for Industry, to form investors in industry. And investors in industry later changed its name to 3i. Now, during the 1980s, investors in industry was essentially a venture capital firm. And it was indeed the largest venture capital firm in Europe. And for a brief period of time, Britain had one of the most successful venture capital industries in the world. But in its infinite wisdom, and as part of uh, basically a Thatcher privatisation, it was decided that the Bank of England would sell off its share in 3i, and so too with the clearing banks. So at the beginning of the 1990s, 3i, as it was then known, floated on the London stock market. And virtually overnight, it stopped doing lending for SMEs, it stopped doing venture capital financing, and it became a management buyout business. And basically, since then, we've had no significant SME lending and a much reduced venture capital market in this country.
Now, the common features of the successful elements of financing that I've just described is, first of all, the nature of the ownership of the institutions. The fact that each successful owner, each successful institution had a long-term owner. The cross-shareholdings in the case of Handelsbanken, the families in the case of the local banks, uh, and the consortium in the case of ICFC and then 3I. The second feature is a combination of knowledge about business as well as finance on the part of lenders and loan officers. The third feature is the devolution of decision-taking to those respective parties. Now, in terms of thinking about how to generalise this going forward and what this points to as an important component of the development of the financial system, then I think there are three elements that this brings out. First of all, there has to be a clear notion as to what the purpose of the institution is. What is the function that it's supposed to perform? It was very clear in the case of the local banks during the Industrial Revolution that their role was there to support the growth of new enterprise in Britain. It's very clear if you look at the way in which uh, Handelsbanken sets out its mission statement, what it sees as its purpose as being, and that is to promote the development of lending to individuals and to companies in particular. And it was very clear precisely what ICFC and 3I were supposed to do. Now, although it's the case that we sometimes believe that the only purpose that companies that are listed on uh, stock markets can perform is to uphold the interest of their shareholders, that is not in fact the case. In a survey that was undertaken of middle management in five countries around the world, that middle management was asked the question, do you believe that your company is being run purely in the interests of your shareholders or in the interests of your stakeholders more broadly defined? In the case of the UK and the US, 70% of the middle management said that they thought that their companies and institutions were being run solely in the interests of their shareholders. In 20% of the French and German companies, they gave that response, and in just 3% of the Japanese companies. And those differences really matter, because the middle management were also asked the question, if your company gets into, finan into financial difficulty, do you believe that it would cut employment or cut dividends? In 90% of the British and American companies, the middle management said that they thought that their companies would cut employment. In 40% of the French and German companies, they gave that response, and in just 3% of the Japanese companies. Now, the, the notion that institutions and companies could have a purpose beyond just their shareholder interests depends critically on not only expounding what that purpose is, but also in having owners who are committed to uphold that purpose. Now, the problem that, is, that arises in the case of, in particular, the UK and the US is not an agency problem of inadequate control by shareholders. It's exactly the opposite. 
It's the absence of any committed shareholders who are dedicated to supporting the pursuit of long-term policies. It's essentially a problem of having dispersed shareholders who are anonymous. You cannot have a relationship with the anonymous. And what British management finds in uh, major listed companies is a significant problem is establishing what the shareholders of the company are seeking as the purpose of the corporation beyond just making shareholder returns. Now, the feature of long-term committed ownership is something that uh, is very much observed in most listed companies around the world. Those committed shareholders are in many cases families, so that while companies are listed on stock markets, in most countries around the world they also have large dominant family owners who hold shares for long periods of time. Even in the case of the United States, there is a greater prevalence of committed long-term ownership and more of a presence of what this slide brings out here as block owners. That is to say, significant concentrations of ownership in companies. So this slide shows along here the average size of blocks in companies in different countries around the world and in the vertical axis the proportion of firms that have block holders at all. And you can see that the UK is marked out by having very few firms that have got uh, significant block holdings at all and where, where they've got them, the size, the average size of those block holdings is very small. The US, in contrast, uh, as shown up there, is a country which is not dissimilar to many other countries around the world in having relatively significant share blocks. And the US allows management a much greater degree of independence in terms of the way in which they choose to structure uh, their ownership and their control. It permits companies to have anti-takeover provisions uh, such as poison pills which protect management from uh, hostile acquisitions and it allows companies to have dual classes of shares that concentrate control in the hands of particular long-term shareholders. So, for example, Google, when it came to the stock market, uh, capped control in the hands of Sergey Brin, Larry Page and Eric Schmidt, the founders of Google, through a dual-class structure. LinkedIn, when it came to the stock market, capped control in the hand of Reid Hoffman, who founded the company. Mark Zuckerberg retained control of Facebook recently. So all of these companies essentially ensure a greater degree of continuing control through the use of dual-class shares. Dual-class shares are not permitted for companies to, that come to the London stock market because the London Stock Exchange is concerned about protecting the interests of other shareholders. Now what this points to is the fact that the US has benefited from a much greater degree of diversity of ownership including the prevalence of a much greater number of local banks that provide a local function that is not dissimilar to what we observed in Britain during the Industrial Revolution. The final component that's critical in terms of the uh, uh, pursuit of longer-term prosperity of 
interest beyond that of just shareholders is the role of boards. Some of the most successful companies in the world are Bertelsmann, the media company, Carlsberg, the brewery, Robert Bosch, the automotive supply company, IKEA, the furniture company, Tata, the engine conglomerate, Velux, the window manufacturer. All of those have one thing in common. They are all owned by industrial foundations. Those foundations devote the majority of their profits to charitable purposes, but it's not that charitable purpose that I want to emphasize. The boards of those foundations are responsible for upholding the purpose laid down by the founders of those foundations. And if the companies below them, like Carlsberg and Robert Bosch, fail to uphold those values and purposes, then it's the boards of the foundations that take responsibility. They essentially act like trustees, trustees of the companies below them, ensuring that the purposes and principles of the firms below them are indeed upheld. Now, while this combination of long-term ownership, clearly articulated purposes, and boards that are responsible for upholding those policies are, I believe, critical elements in terms of establishing companies that, and institutions that one can trust. The important point to, el to emphasize is that there isn't a single right model for how companies should be structured. Indeed, we should be promoting diversity rather than seeking to impose a particular form. Because what is suited to small startup companies is very different from established uh, high-tech companies. What is suited to high-tech firms is very different from uh, more traditional firms. And what is suited, for example, to banks is very different from asset management firms. So we should really be pursuing diversity and the types of approaches for pursuing diversity are, I think, illustrated by some of the ways in which it's done uh, in the United States and elsewhere. So, for example, one of the most interesting uh, innovations that has occurred recently in terms of public law is the emergence of what is known as the Public Benefit Corporation, B corporations, as they're sometimes termed. These are corporations that have a clearly defined public purpose, and it's the role of the board to ensure that those companies abide by the public purpose. And if the company or the financial institution fails to abide by that public purpose, then the owners of that company can uh, sue the board for a failure to uphold that public purpose. Now, I think that this is particularly relevant in the context of companies and institutions that have a public function associated with them. So, for example, in the case of utilities, energy companies, systemically important banks and other financial institutions, companies with uh, significant market power, companies that may have abused public laws in the past, in each of those cases, there's an argument to be said for those companies and institutions having a clearly defined public purpose, pot potentially by it through a charter, for which there should then be a board, essentially like the boards of trustees of the foundations, which are responsible for upholding those public purposes. Because in essence, what is required to ensure 
the delivery of those public purposes is that there is not, as at present, a divergence of interests between companies and those responsible for regulating them. Now, turning to regulation, the traditional view of regulation is that there is essentially a, a, a separation between the regulation of banks on the one hand and securities markets on the other hand. Dating back to the Wall Street crash and the New Deal, in the United States, securities regulation was introduced in the early 1930s, in 1933 and 1934. And bank regulation, which established uh, deposit insurance and the FDIC in the United States, was part of the bank regulation, including the Glass-Steagall Act, that separated investment banking and commercial banking. And that distinction between securities regulation on the one hand and bank regulation on the other now is an established basis of regulation of most financial regulatory systems around the world. The second feature of regulation is it's very legalistic in nature. It basically derives from uh, the use of black letter law for determining how uh, regulatory systems should be structured. The third feature is it's very institutionally based. It basically looks at the institution and it poses the question, what is the appropriate form of regulation of that institution? The fourth feature is it's very domestic. Regulation has really been evolved uh, within countries on a domestic basis and it's only recently that we've seen a significant degree of international coordination of regulation. And finally, for the most part until recently, it's focused on the micro-regulation of individual institutions rather than thinking of the more macro elements. Now, I'm in the process of writing a book with four, five lawyers, four of whom are in Oxford, uh, John Armour, Paul Davis, Jenny Payne, and Dan Ori, and Jeff Gordon, who's at Columbia, uh, in which we argue that this approach to financial regulation is basically entirely wrong. First of all, that the separation between securities regulation and bank regulation might have been appropriate at one time, but it's certainly not appropriate now. And that one should have an integrated approach that looks at regulation in a holistic fashion. Secondly, that the underlying notion that uh, regulation should be based on legal principles is also incorrect. That, in essence, these are economic problems which need economic forms of analysis to derive what is the appropriate basis for regulation. Thirdly, that while the focus of regulation has been on an institutional one, the notion that institutions are the appropriate basis for determining regulation is clearly undermined by the fact that many different types of markets and institutions do essentially the same things. So instead of thinking about uh, the, what the nature of institutions, one should think about the functions that those institutions are performing and regulate on the basis of function, not on institutional form. Fourthly, that clearly in a global financial market, the notion of regulation being based on national uh, uh, factors really needs to give way to thinking about how to formulate 
uh, regulation on an international basis. And finally, the elements of systemic risk should be regarded as being essentially of paramount importance in terms of thinking about the design of regulation, not the failure of particular individual institutions, except insofar as they give rise to systemic failures. Now, the causes for these fundamental changes in the way in which one should be structuring regulation are firstly the fact that uh, the, there have been technological changes which have facilitated the provision of finance and forms that were inconceivable uh, only a few years ago. You only have to think about crowdsourcing, crowdfunding as a mechanism, peer-to-peer -peer lending, the sorts of things that are beginning to emerge as being very significant elements to appreciate that what was really regarded as being forms of funding in the past are no longer going to be the dominant forms of funding uh, going, f going forward. Second element that's critically important is the fact that markets clearly have become global in nature. Uh, and the third element that's critically important is the emergence of shadow banking, which is essentially non-bank institutions performing similar functions to those of formal regulated banks. Now, in terms then of trying to address uh, issues about uh, financial regulation from an economic standpoint, the first thing then to do is to identify, well, what are the underlying market failures? And there are essentially four in nature which are frequently emphasised. The first are information problems, asymmetries in information. The second are problems arising from free rider issues. The, uh, the problem that individual customers, for example, cannot really uh, engage in activities that, even if they're informed, ensure that they get delivered the types of services that they expect to get delivered. The third problem is a problem of... Uh, the uh, monopoly power that many financial institutions might have in ensuring effective competition uh, in markets. And the fourth uh, potential failure is an externality between institutions, the sorts of externalities that give rise to systemic failures. Well, the appropriate responses then are, first of all, to think about disclosure as being in large part the way to deal with information problems, to think about enforcement uh, public enforcement as a way of supplementing private enforcement where it's the case that for free rider problems it's difficult for individuals to enforce uh, contracts. Competition policy is clearly a critical element and perhaps most importantly of all we have to think about how to design systemic uh, responses to internalise the externalities across uh, individual institutions. And in particular, this point about emphasising the systemic elements is especially important because the approach of thinking about uh, regulation at a micro level has the problem that it gives rise to serious unintended consequences. You only have to think about the advice that suggested that banks uh, need to hold relatively low-risk assets uh, to, uh, to avoid potential failures to appreciate that that advice encouraged banks to hold government securities. Well, we might have regarded government securities at one stage as being entirely riskless, but it's slightly questionable now 
whether or not one, that was indeed very valuable advice. Furthermore, in the process of encouraging institutions to hold particular types of assets, then one's essentially introducing a systemic risk because one is affecting the prices of those securities as a consequence, and those price effects then have implications uh, and effects on other institutions. I mentioned at the outset that rules regarding corporate governance proved to be wholly inappropriate. Why is this screen falling down? Am I scared? <laughs> it's tearing itself off. Uh, it's it, 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 You just have to think about the observation that those banks with the best corporate governance standards were the ones that failed the most to appreciate that uh, recommendations regarding corporate governance can have entirely the wrong types of effects. And likewise, the observation that those banks that paid the highest-powered incentives were the ones that took the greatest risks is another indication of how particular uh, recommendations can have quite perverse effects. Now, one illustration of this, and let me try and put this back up, uh, is this slide, which shows the changing nature of the ownership of, uh, of uh, British companies over the period from 1989 to 2000 and, uh, 2010. And basically, as you can see, uh, what has happened is that in 1989, the holding of UK equity by institutions like pension funds and life insurance companies uh, was, around about fi- was around about 50%. By, well, you can see it now over here. By, by the time that you get, <laughs> by the time that you get to uh, 2010, the proportion of holdings by pension funds and life insurance companies has declined from 50 percent to 14 percent, one four percent. Right. Thank you. Okay, so there's been a phenomenal decline in the holding of British equity by pension funds and life insurance companies. And a primary reason why pension funds have got out is that during the middle of the 1990s, we introduced something called the minimum funding requirement, which basically required pension funds to value their liabilities uh, at a government index-linked discount rate. And to minimise their exposure, what they did was they then shifted from equities into gilts, into index-linked government gilts. And uh, that has had the effect of driving down interest rates on government securities essentially to zero. Now, this this was not an intended consequence, and it's had a very serious impact on the structure of financing of companies, meaning that pension funds are no longer, in many respects, a serious player. An analogy of thinking about how one should structure uh, regulation comes from, uh, essentially, the contrast between public health and medicine. When we think about medicine, we're thinking about how to uh, cure individuals. When we're thinking about public health, 
what we have in mind is how to provide protection to societies and communities. Medicine is concerned about diagnosis and prescription. Public health is concerned about how does one identify uh, potential pandemics, how should one uh, isolate uh, the effects, how should one uh, immunise against, and how should one intervene uh, when failures occur. Now, there is, in essence, a very similar distinction that arises in relation to financial regulation. That if we're thinking about taking a systemic approach to regulation, what we should be doing is to basically focus on how to identify potential failures, how to immunise against them, how to isolate uh, the effects of failures, and how to intervene when failures occur. And what that basically involves is, first of all, having uh, systems of being able to measure the extent to which there is exposure to failure, to use capital to immunise against failure, to allow for bail-ins in the event of isolation being necessary, and to have methods of resolving failing institutions. In other words, one needs an approach which has begun to emerge as being the basis of the regulation of financial institutions, but which really places systemic issues at the top. And what this suggests is that in terms of designing our institutions for regulating financial systems, then really what we should be doing is to place the systemic macro elements of regulation at the top, to put this in the context of an international perspective of how to regulate the financial system, and to regard the micro uh, elements as being uh, overseen by the macro elements to ensure that these unintended consequences of micro-regulation do not occur. So, to sum up, what I'm suggesting is that basically there's a complementarity between the governance of individual institutions and companies and the regulation that occurs of financial systems. That we should regard institutions as taking responsibility themselves for their own conduct and not simply going on doing things until someone, namely a regulator, tells them to stop. That they should have clearly articulated purposes, that they should have long-term owners for the most part that are committed to ensuring that those institutions and companies abide by those long-term purposes, that they have independent boards that are, up, that are responsible for upholding those purposes, and that we encourage diversity, not uniformity, in terms of the nature of the ownership and governance of institutions. That from the point of view of regulation, what we require is a greater degree of emphasis on disclosure, on enforcement of uh, failures such as bribery, corruption, market market manipulation and market abuse through stricter enforcement of criminal uh, penalties than has been the case to date, and that the particular emphasis of regulation should be on systemic protection, with a focus on getting the necessary international coordination that is required, as well as the domestic coordination. And it's that complementarity between the structure of regulation and the governance of uh, institutions and companies that is critical to achieving this. 
because if you have regulation where companies and institutions are solely focused on maximizing shareholder returns, then that regulation is essentially putting regulators in conflict with the companies and institutions that they're regulating. One has to have an alignment between a public purpose uh, and the function that regulators are, are trying to perform. But on the other hand, one cannot simply rely on the uh, governance and the, uh, the way in which the private market operates to ensure that social purposes are fulfilled, in particular when there are market failures of the sorts that I was describing earlier on, market failures of information, of uh, uh, free riding, of uh, externalities, those require a public response and a public form of regulation which should be focused on these elements that look at uh, an imp improvement in disclosure, enforcement and addressing problems at a systemic level uh, and an international perspective rather than a domestic one. Okay, thank you very much.